0: Welcome to another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. In this podcast, senior author Dr. Sarah Garfinkel will be discussing her recently published manuscript titled Sensitivity to Changes in Rate of Heartbeats as a Measure of Interceptive Ability with Editor in Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez. So let's get started. Hi, Nino.
1: Hi, Jamie. And hi, Sarah. It's wonderful talking to you. I just heard that you recently moved to UCL and it's a fascinating place and I wish you all the best. So when I first read your paper on interoception of the heartbeat, I was actually immediately fascinated. It was one of the papers where I thought to myself, hopefully the reviewers will love it. I think this is very important, yet still a totally understudied topic. And interception, as, as you will talk about, has been associated with anxiety, mindfulness, emotion in general. And understanding interception is clinically also very important, and I think we'll talk about it. In fact, it reminds me of my own work on the neural control of breathing, where everyone focuses on the role of breathing and ventilation in the lungs, oxygen, yet breathing is so much more. And many people know that, but the scientists don't know this. So I think it's very important. And I think the same applies to the heart. Everyone focuses on the heart as a pump. Yet we all know that the heart is so much more. And I think wasn't the Greek philosophers like Plato or something, they thought that it's the seed of the soul. So my apologies in advance, Sarah, if I try to provoke you sometimes to speculate about how behaviors such as breathing and the heart intersect and influence interoception. But I think that makes this a very fascinating study. And here you focus a lot on the methods, which I think is also important that we bring across that it's so critical to have the right methods to get to this extremely complicated topic, actually. So why don't we start first simple? And Sarah, why don't you explain
0: to the listener
1: what is interoception, for example, relative to extraception?
0: Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm so happy to be here. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about this. Yes, let's start simple because it's going to get so much more complicated. So first of all, interoception is the sensing of internal bodily signals such as the heartbeats, but also feelings of hunger and other internal bodily signals. And so interception can be differentiated from extraception, which are senses that tell us something about the outside world, like vision, hearing and touch. And historically, people have focused on the heart because the heart is a discrete signal. So it's, it, you have an easy signal to tap into so you can measure it to see how accurately people can detect that particular signal.
1: Yeah, and and the heart is a rhythm. And I think different rhythms and how they intersect is such an important topic in general for the brain. And again, something most listeners don't know, really the brain is all about rhythms and the heart is really one that plays a big role there. So, well, oh my God, I already said it, why interception is so important, but why don't you go further and, and explain to us why it is so important?
0: Yeah, so you're right. It's seen as a pump, but actually the heart does so much more. So all the way back to William James. Who said it was sensing signals from our body that gives rise to emotional feeling states? So, what are emotions? They are the sensing of internal bodily signals. And I personally believe that emotions and bodily signals are entwined together. So how do you differentiate sort of cold cognition from emotion? It is the sensing of these internal bodily signals that give rise to, say, fear, which is influenced by sensing the pounding heart. So you have emotion, which is entwined of interception. You also have things like gut instinct and decision-making. So what is that? Often you feel it in your body that maybe this is the right thing to choose or this is the right thing to say. And this instinctive feeling is also derived from the sensing of internal bodily signals, as are things like hunger, thirst, So there are many diverse things which are shaped by these internal bodily signals. Um, So one branch of neuroscience is really trying to see how these bodily signals inform emotion, cognition, instinctive decision making. And another branch is trying to find ways that we can also reliably test how people sense these signals as a means to use them for these other types of processing.
1: Yeah, I think this is an important part also, you know, like the difference between interoception itself versus interoception awareness and how sensitive people are to this awareness and how it influences, as I say, emotion. And that's not the same in every person, correct? So yeah. I think in this context, it's also important to discriminate between interoception itself and the interoception awareness and how it influences mindfulness. So how can you actually then use this interoception to manipulate mindfulness, for example, anxiety?
0: Oh, Oh, it's so interesting. So first of all, you've already touched on that very interesting thing, which is sensing and being influenced by these signals relative to the awareness of these signals. And here is where I think the interoceptive system is really different from the extraceptive system. So the extraceptive system has been developed to tell us something about the outside world. We want to know if we've seen something, heard something, felt something. We need to know that. Whereas for the interoceptive system, our brains are processing signals from the body all the time. And if we were aware of them, then we would be bombarded by these internal signals that would be distracting. So actually, you have a coupling of the extraceptor system to awareness if you need to, as long as you're attending to something, you pretty much know whether you've seen it or felt it. Whereas with the interceptor system, even if you attend to it, you may be able to process the signal and be guided by it, but you're not necessarily aware of the signal. So you have this decoupling of awareness with accuracy or sensing greater for the interceptor system. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know what i think this is so important also specifically also for scientists that you know we tend to not rely on our gut instinct Ah, oh, now let's get the feelings out of the way but yet you know there's so much there that is belo- below our consciousness and yet it's so important and in a way a little bit it's also the same true for exteroception because you have this fusimotor set that where if you're in a in a tense situation you're way more sensitive to exteroceptive uh, information and also there it, you're bombarded every step you're bombarded by this information yet it will be highly confusing if it reaches your consciousness I sometimes feel the consciousness has such a small range of what we can take and you have to protect it all the time
0: Oh my God, you're saying so many things that just really wanting. Yeah, so interesting. But yes, well, but what you've just said about being under threat, then you have changes in internal bodily signals. So under threat, your heart is racing stronger and faster. And actually, this is going to change the way you process extraceptive cues. So some of my other work shows how fear stimuli and threat stimuli are actually boosted by cardiac signals. We're more sensitive to threat. Our amygdala signal is higher. We're more likely to be able to process something as more fearful if our heart is beating stronger and faster. So we also get a prioritizing of information as a function of what the internal body is doing. So you get this lovely interplay between internal processing and external processing as well.
1: Wow, Sarah, you call it the lovely interplay, but you know what? It can be a catastrophic interplay, <laughs> yeah,
0: No, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you're like a be, nervous
1: yeah. or something and then your heartbeat goes up and that causes this excitatory feedback and that can drive you into a catastrophe. And the same thing is, again, sorry that I come back to breathing, but it's the same situation with breathing. If you're, let's say, in a fight or a stress situation, you hyperventilate, your heart rate goes up, yet that basically makes it even worse you have to control it
0: absolutely and in order to control it you maybe need good access to these signals so the relationship between the precision and the accuracy and how it is related to autonomic control I absolutely agree that these systems are endlessly fascinating to me but I actually first got interested in these systems when I was working with individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder These individuals had racing hearts, they have a lot of autonomic change, and they also have persistent fear responses. They have heightened fear memories, they have flashbacks of trauma, they are in a fearful state. And actually, you're right that understanding these mechanisms can also give us deep insight into um, pathological conditions and the body-brain interactions that maybe underlie patterns of thought and processing, which can be hard and related to symptoms.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And one of the biggest problems of PTSD is the hypervigilance, uh, anxieties and dyspnea. Now, you have the other side of the coin where you have the calming, like deep breathing, meditation influences. And how do they play a role also, together with the heart, in doing the opposite, that actually they can calm you?
0: And I think we really need to be able to disentangle all the processes which are involved in interception. So I talk about interceptive accuracy within this paper, but actually I believe that's only one component of interception. So we have the accuracy with which you can detect the signals themselves. You also have the nature of the signals themselves. Are they strong? Are they fast? And those are dynamically interacting with the brain to shape neural activity in the brain as well. So you also, in addition to the strength of the signals, have the neural representation. And then you also have your conscious awareness and insight into these signals. And then you also have the attribution of these signals. Are they signaling threats? So you have all of these and you have attention as well are you hyper vigilant and attending more to these signals and actually a hyper attention to these signals also changes the nature of these signals in the brain so the size of the heartbeat evoke potential in the brain is actually magnified when you're paying attention to the heart so you have all of these higher order attention attribution then accuracy levels, belief levels, insight levels, and the nature of the representation of the signals themselves in body and brain. And all of these go on to shape interception as well as emotional responses and the way that the body can influence um, cognition and emotion. So you mentioned breathing, which is another way that you can modulate these signals. So slow breathing will introduce more heart rate variability and also change the speed of the heart as well, and also change the nature of how then those signals are represented in the brain. And this can influence and instill more of a calming effect through the way in which you're changing the patterns of the signals themselves.
1: Sarah, you know what, I think we made the perfect introduction for why your paper is so important and because it must be extremely challenging to study interception because it's so much influenced by by all the other like how you feel what your day is etc so maybe we talk now about the core of your paper the methods what are the challenges uh, studying interception compared to extraception. And could you explain exactly how you can use these methods then to study this and what are people using at the moment and what did you do new in your study?
0: So interception can be tested in all of these different ways from behavioral accuracy measures to brain scanning measures. But what you need is a vertical signal. You need a real signal in the body to see how people detect it or use it. It's very easy in some ways if you're scanning someone's brain and tracking a physiological response, but if you want to measure people's accuracy to it, you need to tap into a signal in the body. You need to monitor it and then you need to see how accurately people can detect that signal. So historically people have looked at the heart because as I opened out with it's a discrete signal that can easily be monitored using a pulse oximeter or an ECG. and Historically, people have used methods such as getting people to silently count how many heartbeats they have in a specified time frame. So people sit at rest, so their heart rate isn't elevated, a computer will say start, people will close their eyes, count how many heartbeats, the computer will say stop, and they'll give a number. And then you can look at how many heartbeats people report relative to how many they've actually had. This is a method that's been used over decades. However, it has become incredibly controversial in recent years to the point where there have been interception wars and debates and people hate this task. And it's because <laughs> um, you can see that people may have a knowledge of their heart rates, like my heart beats be 60 beats per minute, or they may have some sense of what number they should say. And how do you know that they're not being influenced by higher order beliefs and guesses and knowledge of their heart rates? Maybe if they're just good at judging time relative to actually tapping into these signals and really testing them. So this very simple method that's been used by decades is now being attacked by the psychophysics literature to say, how do you know they're doing what they say they're doing this task? Were specifically designed to try and get around this problem. And how it does this is it actually looks at how you modify counting speeds of your heartbeats as a function of how much your heart is changing. So it's looking actually at that specific equation. It's looking at that slope between your actual heartbeats and your uh, reported heartbeats as a means to see how you change your counting speed as a function of changes in heart rate variability. And it's done at rest. So people are just sitting still. So we're not doing anything to elevate their heart rate or change their heart rate variability. So we know that heart rate changes naturally as a function of the breathing cycle. And we're just taking advantage of that natural heart rate variability at rest to see if people modify their counting speed of individual heartbeats with these natural changes in in heart rate variability.
1: You know, Sarah, that's why I was so fascinated because I think you're coming actually to the core. So it's not much more, not only more objective to measure, but you come at the core of what we're actually trying to probably regulate because this heart rate variability is so important. I mean, it is a sign of autonomia In general, you know, how is breathing and the heart coordinated in the brainstem and how do these reflexes work? And so I think by looking at the heart rate variability, you you actually look at what is actually important here. And the question, however, is heart rate variability is so complex in itself. You know, you have the respiratory sinus arrhythmia, you have like these, these fast heart rate variability. And you have the slow ones, the mile waves, the bar reflex, etc. So, how do you disentangle these different types? Can people actually sense that?
0: So, at the moment, and I think this is why this paper has inspired future questions to look at the nature. I think for me, that's the main take home message of this paper is the nature of these autonomic signals and how they may shape interception. And I think this is the main point. And actually, this paper raises so much more questions than it answers. But in a way, to me, that's exciting as well. The point I and this is quite a even I struggle with this point because it's I find this really hard. Um, So please tell me whether this makes sense or not. What we find is the reverse of what you would expect. So what you would expect is that as people have more heartbeats, so as you have faster heartbeats suddenly that happen with this natural heart rate variability, you would expect people to speed up and count more heartbeats. You would expect the two to go together. But actually what this paper shows is the very reverse. That actually, as you have more heartbeats, people count less heartbeats.
1: My God, yes, this is fascinating. So this, yeah. And I was thinking about this myself. So here's my little, and look, I'm not the expert and I'm really speculating, but you know, the heart rate variability is very sensitive to dysautonomia. So basically when you're under stress or something, your heartbeat goes up, but then the heart rate variability goes down. And so maybe as you get into the stress situation, you don't want to signal to your brain so much, because as I said, if you're in the middle of a fight, you don't want your heart rate to drive your panic even more. You want to quiet it down. So maybe it's it's a way to protect you from this as your heart rate goes up and therefore you you cannot signal it so much speculation, but I don't know whether it's clear.
0: I love it. I love that point so much because I sort of instinctively felt it was something adaptive um, and, I, and I think that's an intriguing mechanism. And that's why it really goes to needing future research to look at the nature of heart rate variability, what's driving it and how that might shape interceptive and processing in the moment to really be able to dissect the mechanisms underlying this.
1: Yeah, and I think to this question comes also this whole question of neuromodulation. When you're yeah. in a flight and fight situation, you release all your endorphins because what you don't want is go into this panic state in the middle of a fight. If you're attacked by a wolf and your heart rate goes up, your breathing goes up, the wolf knows you're feared, so you will be eaten by the wolf or the tiger or something. So, so your system has to release all these endorphins or bring your state back to calm you down so that tiger knows you're not scared and then the the tiger will go away. And then I think uh, this is important in our, opiate crisis right now, because, you know, these endorphins are released during these stress situation to calm you down, to control your heart rate variability. And yet people take then these opiates when they're actually very calm during sleep, for example, and then they can be killers. But I think normally they are there to protect you. And I think that leads to this whole question that you're addressing of, you know, when do you want to have interoception and when do you want to turn it off?
0: And they're the questions which have always occupied me and how that goes wrong or how those processes are altered in people who are more vulnerable to anxiety, stress. I think, and what I would really like is to try and work together with, with methods people as well. So at the moment, there's a move in the interceptive literature to try and adopt more psychophysics approaches to studying bodily signals. But there, there seems to be some degree of assumption that this is a constant signal which is of a constant rate and a constant strength. And they don't ground it in physiology and they don't ground, they don't take into account it's changing nature. And I think this paper and work of others, I think, is trying to say, look, you've got to see these signals as dynamic, adaptive, and you have to ground them in physiology in order to understand how people sense and detect them because of physiology and their purpose shapes their perception. You can't take. Just the psychophysics
1: approach. Sarah, you know, it's so funny. Uh, I, I think we have the same problem in the neural control of breathing field because there are so many people that come from focusing on oxygen and CO2, etc., and, and they are really not neuroscientists or understanding, you know, the state, the dynamic situation that the brain is constantly in. And therefore we have also a lot of these wars in the field where, you know, you come from different backgrounds. In the end, I feel these wars are healthy, you know, like if you survive them, but they nurture the discussion and in the end, everybody has some right. So this is what we try to achieve, correct? And I
0: really agree. If we can work together, then I think that's where we get the answers. Um, But it means we have to work together and it means we can take psychophysics inspiration and hopefully they also take inspiration about the nature of the embodied uh, manifestation of these. And I agree that then collaboration and working together is the way forward.
1: (laughs) I think one other important part that we haven't really talked, if we think about this autonomy in general, it's not only your psychology that changes your heart variability, but a lot of disorders, diseases, changes like epilepsy, sleep apnea, all this changes your cardiorespiratory coupling. And the question is, if it changes this, does it also change your interception? And if it changes your interception, does it also lead to psychological problems? So it starts maybe with a pathological dysautonomia that is driven by, let's say, reactive oxygen species or other metabolic problems. But then it's translated into the psychology. And, and I find this kind of interesting question because, for example, epilepsy, everybody focuses on the seizures, et cetera, but there's a lot of psychological issues associated with this and we don't get it. And maybe interception is one part of it. Again, I love to speculate and thank God we don't have to put it in peer review what we say, <laughs> but, but I think uh, it's, these are very interesting questions that need to be addressed.
0: And I do wonder if we are moving more to a revolution, like we were in the decades of the brain, And I do wonder that to really make advancements in the treatment of mental and physical health, as well as to understand how physical health conditions can lead to um, changes in in mental health as well, we need to understand the dynamic relationship between the brain and the body as key in these conditions and as well as look at peripheral and body-based targets for different treatments to also help people.
1: Yeah. Sarah, and you know, I think that brings us to another question that I had. A big deal is for you to face individual variability, I guess. And the question is, you know, how reproducible is your test if you do this on the same person on several days? Do you expect, how do you dissect a trait of a person that is stable over days, like interception, versus, oh, I have a bad day. Today, my heart rate variability is down. And oh, uh,
0: and this is, this is an unanswered question in the literature. So, Typically, interception is seen as both a state and a trait construct. So it's a state construct in the sense that if you make someone very scared or very hungry, or you do something to perturb the system, then people are gonna be more aware of those signals. They potentially have better interceptive accuracy. So that's how you can have state effects. However, it's also thought that over and beyond those state influences, there is a trait like influence. So you have some people who are very, very good and very, very accurate at their body um, and detecting their body signals, whereas you have some people who are not, maybe people who are more alexithymic, they don't know what emotion they're experiencing or people who don't necessarily feel hunger. And you can see that too. And they don't know if they're hungry or not. They eat regularly at mealtimes, at certain times, otherwise they forget to eat. So you can also see traits differences as well. I think it's unknown in the literature to what extent it is really stable versus uh, to what extent there are state influences as well uh, shaping that. We did do a test-retest reliability within this experiment, but it was done in close proximity. And even then, we didn't get very high correspondence, which shows us that there is is this noise in the system. And working out the source of that, I think, is informative mechanisms as well.
1: Yeah, and I think it's fascinating because you're getting into this interface of what is actually a disorder and what is actually an advantage, you know, like when you think about autism or ADHD, et cetera, you know, one of the parts of the problem with autism is there's difficulties to socially interact, et cetera. And Yet at the same time there are advantages to this. I remember one father telling me that when it was about basketball his kid would not get distracted by all the noises and would always hit this basket and because there's total focus. So the question is you know whether in fact some part of the interception can be used to better describe actually these complex disorders where maybe their interception can be turned down much better than in a normal person. Or maybe we have the opposite in ADHD kit where they cannot turn down the introspection and and therefore they are constantly distracted. So it could be a cool probe to better describe what is going on in in these children.
0: And I think that's true. And also it can help people. So um, anxiety is very, very comorbid in autism. And we've just finished our first clinical trial, which came out of our basic research. So we did initial experimental work to show that in some autistic adults, they had impaired interceptive accuracy, they had um, poor accuracy at detecting when their heart was beating, but they often said that they felt very aware and sometimes even overwhelmed by bodily sensations. So it's not that they don't have access into these cues, maybe it's better to say there's sort of a lot of noise in the system. And maybe anxiety was also related to that noise. Maybe they weren't able to regulate themselves because the signals were so noisy. So we taught adults who are autistic to have better accuracy at detecting when their heart was beating. This helped them regulate their emotions more. And we saw in 30% of these individuals, they had such a significant drop in their anxiety that by a threshold that we pre-registered, we were able to say that they had recovered. So it does seem that this training and, these disruptions in the intersector system can help some autistic individuals regulate their anxiety, but it's only true for some of them. And I think looking at subsets of individuals where understanding that you not sorry I'm not saying this very well but condition may not be associated with universal um, impairments or universal increases there'll be individual differences there'll be state differences Um, we also know from the autistic literature that some senses are influenced also by hormones and developmental stage and actually seeing all the ways in which you can get different sensory profiles um, in in these different conditions can be complex and vary in so many different ways as a function of internal context, individual differences, developmental stage.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, this uh, brings us to a very important question. How do you define a disease? Because, I mean, autism is a spectrum, and and the earlier you recognize it, the better you can intervene. But really, you would like to understand what's going on in every individual, and we get to this processing of this information. Are they processing, let's say, interception faster, and therefore, they have a, a higher gain to respond or l- slower. And, and basically, these are very questions that then comes to the neurobiology of interoception. Now, maybe can you talk about what we know about the neurobiology? Like, I think the insula is a big deal here because uh, that's also where breathing and the heart come together. So maybe- And the insula, yeah.
0: Oh, insula is my current favorite brain area. So the insula um, is involved in uh, the representation and the sensing of internal body sensations. So there is lovely experimental work by um, Brakesphere and his group where they look at uh, heart rate variability in the scanner and they just model that and then they regress it in a model to look at neural coupling with heart rate variability just to look at how neural activity and cardiac activity coexist and you see representation in the posterior insula suggesting that there's lovely coupling there between uh, heart rate variability and neuronal activity and work by Hugo Critchley who is my old mentor and now is one of my main collaborators he did seminal work in the scanner where he got people to focus on their heartbeat using these little uh, cardiac tests and he was able to show that the more accurate people were at detecting when their heart was beating the more anterior insula there was specifically on the right side so it seems like there's sort of gradient in the insula from the posterior being more the representation of these signals in the body, and the anterior being more the sensing and conscious awareness of these signals. And this is so yes. important. Yeah, sorry, you go
1: No, 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 no. I, I I didn't want to stop you on your flow, but I think one of the questions when we come to the neuroscience is also we all know about these, the pain, the deferred pain, you know, like you have these organs inside and you don't sense them obviously in your conscious and so you defer it to sensory exteroceptive receptors on the skin do you think when we come to interoception has similar influences on exteroception that helps us bring it to consciousness or like the idea that okay your interoceptive state is changing either and that changes your senses of your exteroceptors and you become hyper vigilant or less vigilant about this (laughs)
0: So it's a really interesting way of framing it. It's very possible that framing is right. The way I've always thought about it is our brains and our bodies are dynamically coupled. So when a signal in the body changes, the neural activity changes as well. And then that neural activity can act as carrier waves to prioritize shape the way in which you process the world. It's like a filter which puts its touch on the world. So you get different states in the body that augment attenuate and color the way you process the world
1: yeah i think there's cool work done on learning and memory i think we have a paper in general physiology also on that where if you time your learning to the heartbeat you can improve your learning capability and i think that Brings us to this exactly what you say, where you have these different carrier frequencies of the heart, of the breathing, and your cognitive processes where the rhythms are there. So it could be a really important timing signal that helps.
0: You You One of your other podcasts on that paper, so I was listening to that, and it was so interesting. And um, so that shows you that learning is actually prioritised at cardiac diastole relative to systole, and this is actually something that I have also shown in my own work, where we actually looked learning and memory, where we time locked the presentation of different words either to when the heart was beating or in between heartbeats. And we found that you're more likely to remember something if it occurs in between heartbeats relative to on the heartbeats. So you have this interfering effect of the cardiac signal on consolidation. Uh, so- Amazing.
1: And, and you think that also the heart rate variability as a measure, not the heartbeat now, as but the heart rate variability, that if you have an increased heart rate variability, that it influences your learning versus if you have a decreased heart rate variability. Sorry. (laughs) You know, like instead of looking at the timing of the heartbeat, like, is someone that has a low heart rate variability better able to learn in this state than? someone who has a high
0: and i'm sure that is true there must be studies on that i i there must be because again heart rate variability is indicative of the the nature of neural activity as well as the relationship between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone and this is this is going to affect subsequent learning and memory so i am Mm -hmm. sure although that's not something i've studied personally i'm sure there's work detailing that as well
1: so maybe it's a good time to start with what are the next steps for your work where do you want to take it now that you have this very cool method that I think will hopefully revolutionize how we measure this. So where do you want to go from here?
0: So I really hope, and I'm not sure, I'm very behavioral with some physiology, but it's my hope that this intriguing paradox of more heartbeats occurring, less accounted. I would love people with real expertise in the measurement of physiology to try and work out why that's the case. Um, And because I think this could be deeply meaningful about what gets upregulated and downregulated and why, uh, giving real insights into the interceptor system. And when we get insights into the interceptor system, we can better understand how and why it goes wrong and how we can help people. But I think this is an intriguing uh, paradox. It needs to be understood. Um, if anyone, so that would be a way forward. I would also love to look more at altered interceptive processing in different clinical conditions. I'm getting increasingly more interested in schizophrenia, dissociation, functional neurological disorders, there are so many conditions characterized by alterations in mental health where you see profound changes in how people sense and use bodily signals and i personally think that a real revolution in how we understand and treat mental health will be by looking at these interceptive mechanisms
1: god yes i want i want to work in your lab and and, and, <laughs>
0: and <that. laughs> want to work
1: in your lab no No, but this is really interesting and and i think you know the whole idea how dynamic your brain states are and how they're influencing each other i mean interoception could be a cool tool and translate it into the end-up psychology that often gets criticized because it's wooly but this is a mechanism where you can actually get to it and also There's so many disorders. Actually, most neurological disorders are associated with psychological problems, and we treat them as something separate. You know, we treat, as I said already, the seizure, we treat the seizure, but not thinking that the seizure might change your psychological state and is interoception a good sensor for that is really a very interesting question and then we have all these kids with congenital heart disease and you know in our center actually the whole heart center joined our center for integrative brain research because you know we can fix the heart but we cannot fix the brain that is associated with this and these kids now are surviving and yet they have a lot of psychological problems the the interesting thing is when you look at these kids they don't have severe psychological problems just like very very subtle and they might have some little learning disabilities or some behavioral disabilities, but it's nothing that you would pick up in the MRI. But I think you can pick it up with looking at interoception. So I think, yeah, you, there, there are millions and millions of new steps, I guess, working. That's from so interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I
0: would love to talk to you more about that. That's so fascinating. Thank you.
1: So, Sarah, what are the important take home messages for our listeners? <laughs> Sorry, you bombarded oh, <laughs> them with millions of ideas, I'm sure. But what are the important ones where you want to I take think them home?
0: That detecting and measuring interception is deceptively hard, that we think these are signals that we can easily track and monitor in, and know how we sense them. But actually, even something which is as regular as the heartbeat, we really don't understand how it's detected. And methods work going forward will hopefully use a variety of approaches such as psychophysics, but grounded in neurobiology as a means to really understand the dynamic nature of these signals and how the brain processes them as a means to really understand the mechanisms underlying uh, interception um, and I hope this paper will inspire some of those methods. And there's so much other brilliant work happening in, in labs all around the world. And I think this is a really exciting time where we can work together to try and understand altered interceptive processing in different mental and physical conditions.
1: Wow, well, Sarah, thank you so much. And I feel like you're bringing us back to the old Greek people uh, where, you know, they thought, okay, the heart is this seat of the soul or the spirit and, and there is definitely something to it and maybe it is going via interoception and if we can get a handle on it we really get to something that has been totally overlooked and because we just looked at the pump mechanism of the heart so i'm really fascinated and i hope that the listeners come back and start reading all your papers and not only the JNP paper here but and that you submit more papers to us
0: definitely will <laughs> thank okay you so much. thank you so it's much been
1: a, sarah that's fantastic and a pleasure
0: thank you Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by my colleague, Cho Chi Chung. To listen to our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.